Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined today by Josh Silver. This is Political Gold with Josh Silver. Josh, you have told me for the many years you have been so kind to be with us on the show as an expert political consultant, someone who is as knowledgeable or more knowledgeable at national politics than anyone else I know, that we can't pay a lot of attention to polls, especially early on in the political cam- in a political campaign. And yet there seems to be a consensus that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for president based on polls. So could you square this circle for me, please? Why are we supposed to believe all these polls now when not one vote has been cast, one caucus has not been held? Help me understand that. Well, hi, guys. Uh, Bill, what, what about 40 points, don't you understand? I mean, the, the difference in terms of what you're talking about historically is that very few polls have ever been this massive in terms of discrepancy between the front runner and the other candidates. Uh, 538 does an aggregate of a gazillion, actually it's a technical term, a gazillion, a gazillion polls. Right. Uh, Trump's got 55% of likely Republican voters. The closest person behind him is DeSantis at 13. There's just, sure, if if this if there was a 20-point difference even between DeSantis and Trump, well, maybe. There's a lot that can change. This is just massive. And not only that, but Trump's lead is growing even when he's doing things like saying the most outrageous things. Like I think he was basically implying that the former chief of staff, Mark Milley, should be f- killed, um, that, that he, he missed the first debate. He's going to miss the second. He does everything crazy you could imagine, and his popularity grows. So it's really basically impossible to imagine a world in which he does not get the nomination. What about all of these indictments? What if Trump ends up getting convicted? What if he's sentenced to prison? Is that really not going to have any effect on the outcome? So for the Republican primary, he will still win. It's clear the indictments have actually increased his popularity amongst Republican voters. Um, remember, you know, for everybody scratching their heads, like remember, we are in an information bubble environment where, where Trump supporters get their news from Fox and from right-wing radio. There is no reason to oppose or dislike Trump when you are in their media bubble with their worldview. There, there's no reason to, because they don't hear Bill Newman and, and Buzz Eisenberg and their in, your incredible wisdom. They don't... They don't <laughs> and even an occasional flip <laughs> remark. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, so that, that continues apace. What's interesting, though, is how polling does show, and I, and I believe this to be true, that those coveted swing voters, the voters that will decide the general election really are persuaded by whether or not Donald Trump gets indicted and and then convicted, and they don't like it as much as Republican voters do. So what that means is the general election becomes more competitive, and competitive it needs to be, because remember, I mean, <laughs> Joe Biden is super unpopular. I mean, this is a, this is like, he's so unpopular. Here's the latest aggregate of a gazillion polls. Yeah, the next thing which I want to ask you about Biden's polling, since I guess we are supposed to believe that. Right? It's horrific. I mean, his polling is at 41 point, well, basically 41% of, of American voters uh, approve of him, 
4.6% disapprove. Now, you could say, well, it's not that different than Clinton, than Obama at this point. But the difference is, is that like Obama had 9% inflation at this time. Like he was he was dealing with an economic kind of major major embarrassment at the moment and prices were going up and people were unemployed uh that's not happening biden's indicators as you've talked about on the show are all good right now like he's he's objectively has good numbers although those can be misleading too because the numbers around things like inflation unemployment those look good but at the same time record numbers of Americans are like, they have three jobs and they're like barely getting by. So that's not really, you know, poverty is actually gone down under Biden significantly, but it remains quite high. And the working poor is a massive constituency of, of among which there's a lot of Trump voters, but he's super, super unpopular. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, how popular is he? Well, um, right now, according to these, uh, these aggregate polls, 41% of Americans view Donald Trump favorably. So roughly the same percentage view Trump favorably as they do Biden and unfavorable roughly the same. It's one point lower. So he's actually less unfavorable, therefore a little bit more popular. 55.4% of Americans view Trump unfavorably. So this is like, it is absolutely, I believe a likelihood that Trump wins uh, at the current the current current numbers wins the general election or wins, wins the, the general election she wins the general election so in some ways the indictment and conviction of trump in one of these four cases may be one of the only hopes for joe biden to win the presidency could you explain to me why biden is unpopular leave aside the misgivings about his age in the general election he has had political success and legislative success and economic success and foreign policy success. He has been a successful president and he's always disliked. Why? There's a good, you know, it's good. I'm glad you asked because there was a, a good op-ed I, I read in the Times recently about this, which is the best guess, and it's not entirely clear because it does defy logic in many ways, but the best, the best analysis I've seen is that Joe Biden Unlike Bill Clinton and 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 Obama, to to a greater degree than 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 Joe Biden, Joe Biden has been appeasing the farther left side of his base uh, pretty aggressively, going to picket with the auto workers, uh, being a, a little bit more conservative on on immigration, but but generally moving with the far left of his party more than the previous Democratic presidents have done, and what that's done is it's the numbers show it's very much turned off Latino and black voters who are culturally, culturally much more conservative than liberal white people. And so what we're seeing is an abysmal numbers amongst blacks and Latinos with Biden. And he's viewed as really old and decrepit. And I don't know, you guys, if you're at a dinner party amongst the most liberal people, like, they're still going to say, oh, my God, he seems so old. But in terms of getting back to the, the general election, if Trump wins, when he takes office, he will be 78, the same age that Biden was when he took but office. It, so in the fourth year of his term, mm -hmm. third year of his term, he'll be the same age that right now he's claiming Biden is too old to govern at. So it... it it all makes no sense, Josh. Can you make sense of it for me? Yeah, because Buzz, sure, from a numerical point of view, you're right, but look at the two guys. I mean, Trump is way more vital. 
He's got more. He's sharper. He's quicker. He's sharper. He he, he just said that Biden's going to start World War II. His cognitive abilities. He's, he repeats himself. He's, no, you're putting substance over style, and that's not what presidential politics are about. I'm talking oh. about stylistically. Mm. Stylistically, he's louder. He's more boisterous. He moves better. This is Dan. I have a question for you. So uh, if I remember the 2020 Democratic primary uh, election, what happened is the Democrats consolidated around Joe Biden, right? There was clearly Obama officials who kind of pressured everybody to, hey, leave the campaign and unite behind a candidate. So after, I'm asking, after, after South Carolina. After South Carolina. Yes, I was getting there. So after, after he proved that he could win one primary state with South Carolina, which saved him. So the question to you is... Do the Republicans have any strategy like that in order to defeat him, consolidate around one candidate? I mean, they're going to consolidate around Trump because they have to. And what you've seen is a trend. The Koch brothers and a, and a lot of other big-time Republican donors gave Ron DeSantis over $100 million for his PAC. Um, you saw a trend. This is from Politico yesterday, an article that I saw that – shows that big, big money first coalesced around DeSantis. Then he tanked a few months ago. Then it started to eke over to Tim Scott, the the senator from South Carolina, who's been really subpar, is doing terribly. So that's gone. Nikki Haley, they gave a moment where they were starting to push money to her. And the consensus is they're kind of giving up right now. On you, Nikki Haley? On all, I mean, on all of alternatives it, it, to Trump. He's 50 points ahead in some polls. If she can win one state, wouldn't the elites go and unite behind them, throw all the money behind one candidate in order to try matter. to beat her? No? no, you don't beat a you don't beat a 30 to 50 point lead with even even half a billion dollars. It doesn't work. What if Trump does not do well in the first caucus states or the first primaries? Could that shift this? I mean, you know, there's some speculation that it could, but I just highly doubt it. You guys have seen over and over again in presidential races, you do see like somebody wins. I mean, I don't have them at the tip of my tongue. So somebody wins oh, Iowa and it's like, oh, my God, this is a game changer. And then. Nothing. Trump thought he was going to win Iowa back in 2016, and, and it was it Ted Cruz. So you made my point. It didn't, it point, didn't yeah. matter. It so, didn't matter. So, and again, again, Obama won Iowa, and it was a game changer, right, back right. when he was running for president the first time. So, you know, the, But that was because a black candidate winning in a lily white state was, was big news. True. So, so the bottom line is Trump's going to be the nominee. Uh, we are in a dystopian reality where if he becomes president— uh, you know, all bets are off. He's talking openly about aggressive retribution against his opponents. And like we're, we're going into sort of a Venezuela or, a, you know, a Chile. I mean, this is like our country is, is tanked if he gets elected. It really is. <laughs> uh, Bill, you know how when a meteorologist gives you bad uh, forecasts of what the weather's going to be? Up until today, I always loved Josh Silver. Right now, oh, Josh. I'm just getting difficult. No, I was thought you were going to say, Buzz, that when the meteorologist gives you bad, bad, bad forecast, you turn the channel because you want to hear something else. <laughs> well, but now, meanwhile, guys, look over to the Senate. You've got, you've got this totally corrupt senator from Democratic Senator Menendez from, from New Jersey. This guy is basically digging in, going to stay in it. And he, it, it, the pundits and, and who know that state are saying this is the first time in 52 years where it would be likely that that New Jersey U.S. Senate seat will go to the Republicans. Well, that is likely if Menendez runs as the Democratic nominee. What are the odds that the Democrats are going to say no? Even in New Jersey, when you're hiding $450,000 in cash in Allegedly. your— Allegedly. In your, in 
Well, there is $450,000 in cash. The explanation is, oh, I don't know. There was a lot of change for what I bought recently. And gold bars. I mean, even by New Jersey standards, this is outrageous. And I think the Democrats have got to have a, a candidate to take on Menendez in the primary. Is there not a Senate ethics committee that opens up and that can remove them temporarily? Yeah, it's, it's impeachment. Possibility of impeachment. I suppose. I mean. Of a senator? No. I, yeah. He's got $8 million in his campaign account right now. Um, It's unclear the power that the party has to to oust him. Um, So, I mean, his primary channel challenger last time was an unknown named Lisa McCormick, who won 38% of the vote in the primary. So she's she's actually a decent campaigner. So there is an alternative, uh, she she being one of them. Unclear what's going to happen. This is also new, right? This broke right. what, less than a week ago. Yeah. But it's something to watch because at the moment, the conventional wisdom, which is often wrong, is that the Democrats can hold the U.S. Senate, barely, maybe, mm-hmm. and that the Democrats could possibly take the U.S. House next cycle, in part because of the drag created by Trump in the races that matter that will decide the House. So... There is a there is a reality in which there's a Democratic trifecta that wins in 2024. That's like possible, but latest trends, what we're seeing today, are are looking pretty dark. To your point, Buzz, it's depressing. But on the other hand, how many times have we seen two months from now? I come in and trends are different, and it could be looking much better for those who don't want to see a second Trump presidency. So all bets are off. But for the moment, things are bad. Can I just go back to New Jersey for one second? Sure. Uh, what about Chris Christie running for Senate? He hasn't talked about it. He's obviously busy with his campaign right now. He's not doing well, although he's doing, you know, it's funny. He's he's polling better than DeSantis. He's actually second to Trump in some polls in, really? su- in some states. So, which is interesting. I mean, he but he's, he's second to Trump in states that have a more liberal audience. I have a question for both of you. If in case Trump does get convicted, can he stay out of jail while he appeals the conviction? I guess I'm asking everyone. Yeah, Yeah, it's up to the judge who is presiding over the trial whether or not he would have a stay of execution, literally, of his sentence while his appeal is pending. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. More political goal with Josh Silver. I want to know about, well, that trifecta for Democrats, that optimistic scenario. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. 
2022, Whole Children moved its campus to Northampton. Continuing the programming we've offered since 2004 for children and teens of all abilities, including developmental and intellectual disabilities, as well as those with autism. After school and Saturday classes for this session run from October 3rd to December 9th. Take a look at the classes we have. Yoga, chorus, cooking, dance movement, and video game. Come take a tour. Wholechildren.org. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with political consultant Josh Silver. This is Political Gold with Josh Silver. And I want to know more about something you mentioned in the first segment, Josh, which is Biden's perception, the perception of Biden as being really on the left wing of his party. And one thing that he is doing to try to bolster his reelection also kind of reinforces that view, which is he's taking to the picket line with the UAW in support of the auto automobile workers who are striking. Do you think that hurts him? Really? No, I don't think it hurts him. I mean, I, I do think it's a little bit, it's a complicated situation because we're not, you know, it's just like when, remember when ABC, NBC, and CBS were like, that was the big, that was TV. I, like, this is a similar thing. Like the big three automakers are no longer the big three automakers the way they used to be. It's just striking against the three of them leaves out the enormous market share of Kia and Hyundai and, and Toyota and, and Nissan and Tesla. And, you know, the list goes on. So there's that. I, I don't think, Bill, that this is a game-changing dynamic, whether or not he goes and, 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 and pickets, but it's no coincidence that Trump arrives in the same state uh, tomorrow. And so I think as Trump makes an effort to make his sort of faux appeals to the working class, these sort of empty appeals to the working class, it's clear that, that, Bi- that Biden's trying to get out ahead of him and basically say, no, if, if you want to be in, you know, in, in with the working class in solidarity, then you go to the picket line and you, and you actually stand up for them. So I think it will sow some confusion amongst auto workers and other labor unions that have significant percentages of their, of their members who actually are Trump supporters. They are. Why? What's the matter with Kansas? I mean, you, we've had this conversation, right? Using wedge issues and social issues to to basically get conservative voters to vote against their own economic interests. This is something that's been going on for decades. It works. It's been done effectively with working class unionized voters, as it has with working class voters across the you know in other sectors. So that's that's the driving dynamic. I'd like to go back to the Senate races for a moment, if we could, please. I have an inbox filled with with messages that say, if you don't give money to so-and-so now, the Republicans could take over the Senate. This is the race that we need to win in order to keep the Senate Democratic. Uh, it seems to be there are at least a half a dozen of those 
candidates who seem to think my email address is a good place to send this stuff <laughs> all the time. I don't quite get that, but they do. That said, do the Democrats have a sporting chance to keep the Senate? And what happens if they lose New Jersey, which Menendez seems to be intent on making reality? Okay, so as of today, big caveat, we're still so far off, guys. But as of today, if you if I had to make a, a bet, maybe bet my two daughters, I would say the Republicans take control of the Senate uh, in 2024 and the Democrats get the House. And that would be the first time, I believe, ever that the House and Senate have flipped in opposite directions uh, ever in the same year. By the way, Bill... You pointed out to me during the break, and I just looked. You're absolutely right. There is no impeachment of a senator. There is a removal by a two-thirds vote to expel a senator. So thanks for that clarification. So I'm just going to read you a little segment from New York Magazine, which is actually this is a good piece. If Biden can hang on to the White House, then flipping the House may mean a Democratic trifecta like the one that made bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act possible during Biden's first two years as president. But perhaps not. The same election wizards who expect the House to flip from red to blue, which is a conventional wisdom that it's quite likely, also figure that the Senate is likely to flip from blue to red, barring a couple of upsets or maybe a straight ticket performance led by Biden. The Senate landscape for 2024 is viewed as the best for the Republicans in living memory. So this is a really important point. Best map in living memory. They're defending just 11 of the 34 seats that are up all in states carried twice by Donald Trump. As for the 23 seats, Democrats are defending. Think about that. Republicans defending 11, Democrats 23. Uh, there, There is a, a, a peril in that the Democrats are defending all three seats they hold in the states that Donald Trump carried for president in 2020, Montana, Ohio, West Virginia. And they're defending five more states where Biden carried out by margins smaller than his national edge. His national edge was roughly 4.5, and these were smaller numbers in those states. Those are Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. So it looks really bad, and the best thing that we can hope for is that you know we see massive continued improvement in the economy, stability in terms of like Ukraine and other areas that are kind of friction points, and maybe some of those like human growth hormones or something work on Biden and he gets a little vim and vigor. But maybe Biden starts some kind of <laughs> exercise class. It's kind of the 2023 Jane Fonda with, with 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 President Biden doing exercises in the morning. I mean, that's what is missing here is what you identified in the earlier segment, which is he just doesn't look vital. He doesn't have that energy. He doesn't no. inspire people with his oratory. I mean, yeah, he can walk from here to there. Got it. And and for uh, 80 something he looks pretty darn good but he doesn't have that vitality and leadership quality that people look for i think that's what it's about well guys how many press conferences has he done biden holds the, the fewest news conferences since reagan is it two it might be two i mean yeah. guys it's it's unheard of like this guy doesn't do press conferences that i mean that's a little bit of an elephant in the room i mean let's face it if, but do you think most people know that? 
You think most voters are aware and are counting how many press conferences? But when you're not in front of the media, what happens is the media begins to construct, I think, an image of who he is. And if you are on Facebook, YouTube, or whatever these channels, you get a bunch of images of Joe Biden, you know, confused, dazed looks, lots of gaffes. He's walking into walls or something like that. <laughs> but he does yeah. make statements. But, yeah. but, but uh, I, think, I think, Buzz, I think a better question is how much is Biden hurt by the fact that the news is unable to do what they did ev all the time with previous Democratic presidents, which is pull a sound by a, a, a section from a press conference where they're making a sharp, concise answer to a, a thorny question and and being part of the news with a sh you know with an oratory that's like inspiring, that's confidence building. You don't see that from Biden. You well, don't see well, clips of him being like, no, the problem with Ukraine is that, and it's like, oh, that was crisp, well, it was tight. It's convincing. Yeah, well, but, you're, but you're saying that Trump is likely to win the general election. Trump, you know, the, the, his famous press conferences, you know, while he was walking to the helicopter and the helicopter blades were beating loudly behind him or walking up with toilet paper dragging from his foot or something. He wasn't, it's not like he was giving press conferences all the time. Well, look who Joe Biden's being compared to the previous Democratic presidents, like you just said, Josh. Bill Clinton and Obama, probably among the best public speakers in both parties in the last, what, 20 years. No you coincidence. Know? You need that to be a successful president. Well, for being a Democratic successful yeah. president. Yeah, I mean, then you had yeah, George yeah, Bush. I, I would argue that, yeah, okay, okay, I'll give you that on Bush, but like Trump did a lot of press conferences. Remember when COVID happened, he was talking to the press, all he was getting crazy things, but he was going and talking in front of the press constantly. So, you know, I wish I could give you guys better news, but this is a, this is our, these are dark days and the structural problems that came with our, Republic from the 1700s were never improved and fixed. The way we vote, it's, it's all just fundamentally broken. It incentivizes dysfunction, corruption, lack of competition. And if this matters to you, Josh, I tend to agree with you right now. The news tends to agree that Trump has a shot at winning the presidency. Absolutely. So there, let's leave it there, Bill, shall we? <laughs> okay, okay. We're going to our next section. Our next segment will be therapy. <laughs> no, it won't, but we will be right back. Josh Silver, thanks so much. You this bet. has been Political Gold with Josh Silver. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Testimony from defense witnesses begins today in the murder trial of Kara Rintala. Prosecutors rested their case yesterday with the testimony of the chief medical examiner who estimated the time of death of Anna Marie Cochran Rintala at mid to late morning to early afternoon. Dr. Thomas Andrews says the evidence does not support a time of death later than 1 p.m., which contradicts statements given by Kara Rintala. Rintala is on trial for the fourth time in Hampshire Superior Court for the murder of her wife in their Granby home in 2010. The remaining members of the Amherst School Committee and the Town Council will meet tonight to begin interviewing potential school committee candidates amid an ongoing Title IX investigation. School Committee member Jennifer Shio asked whether they could see a redacted copy of the Title IX investigation into the alleged mistreatment of transgender students at the middle school, but her request was denied. I myself am not taking that as the final word. I'm going to keep pushing for transparency and I'm going to keep pushing to release as much information as possible. She says if the identifying information is removed, there is no reason why the report can't be shared.
redact as much as possible, redact people's names, redact identifying information, redact whatever it needed is needed to protect people's confidentiality. I don't want to violate any individual staff's confidentiality or, or identity. That's important. But can we redact, 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 and then release as much of the report as possible so that the public and the school committee can see and read what these reports say about what happened? No members of the school committee or the public have been allowed to see copies of the completed reports yet. Mostly cloudy today. Some occasional breaks of blue sky are likely, a high of 60 to 64. Scattered clouds tonight, chilly overnight, a low of 36 to 42. Partly to mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 66 to 70. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Caminito Steakhouse in downtown Northampton? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Caminito Steakhouse in downtown Northampton is all about its steak and a whole lot more. An eclectic menu, a great bar area, and a superior wine list make Caminito Steakhouse a great place for a special night out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. The future of joint pain relief is here. It's QC Kinetics, advanced regenerative medicine. This is amazing stuff. If you've been told more steroids or surgery are your only options, don't move so fast. Get a second opinion and learn more about how you can harness your body's own healing agents to attack that joint pain. I'm talking about lasting relief. QC Kinetics doesn't mask the pain. These treatments go to the very root of the problem. Using concentrated healing properties placed directly in your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue. Imagine living your life this fall with no more pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back and without drugs, downtime, or surgery. Listen, life is about motion and QC Kinetics is giving people their lives back with these all-natural treatments. Call the local medical professionals and get a free consultation today. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. It's time to learn about the SciTech Cafe with Mount Holyoke College Professor of Physics, Kristen Nordstrom, who is the head of the SciTech Cafe. For those of our listeners who somehow at this point don't know what the SciTech Cafe is, Please tell us, Professor, and then tell us who is going to be the presenter at the SciTech Cafe tomorrow evening. Please. All right. Thanks, Bill. Um, yeah, so SciTech Cafe happens about once a month. Uh, it is a public lecture series uh, where it's free. Members of the public are welcome to come, and a scientist will talk about either their research or something that's very important to them in terms of their you know, scholarly work. And tomorrow, which is going to be at Abandoned Building Brewery in East Hampton, uh, doors open at 6 we're going to hear from Professor James Lowenthal, who's a professor of astronomy at Smith. Uh, he's actually teaching right now, so I'm going to be doing the talking for him today. Uh, but tomorrow, he's going to be talking about essentially why darkness is so important in the night sky and how it's been kind of interrupted in the last half century or so. 
And I should note for listeners who have not had the joy and opportunity to hear Professor James Lowenthal speak, he's fabulous. Mm-hmm. I have listened to some of his talks on the night sky. Inspiring. A little depressing occasionally, but really (laughs) inspiring. So give us a bit of a preview, if you would, please, Professor Kristen Nordstrom. What's he going to talk about? Um, So he's going to be focusing on why darkness is important. So darkness is important just for our connection to things like the Milky Way and whatnot. But there's also a bunch of specific things. So there's been increased artificial illumination at light at night in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, especially. Um, And one of the huge problems with that is thinking about disruptions of human circadian rhythms. That's that's actually a big deal. Um, And part of that is due to the fact that a lot of our lighting has gone from incandescent bulbs to LED bulbs. And LED bulbs are much bluer than your old standard incandescent bulbs. And blue light actually disrupts circadian rhythms much more um, because it actually scatters much more in the atmosphere and in our eyes. So we're not sleeping as well, or we're uh, that's distracted? the kind of idea. Yeah, so it's the kind of idea. It might be disrupting uh, our own sleep patterns. Um, there's been links to sort of chronic conditions like d- uh, diabetes, cancer, due to this light pollution. Um, in terms of the animal kingdom, many many species are nocturnal. Uh, something like sixty percent of mammals are actually nocturnal. So this is really disrupting nature as including well, including some people we know. Including some people we know, like exactly. Me. <laughs> and um, so this, it's a really big deal. Um, and there's also other kinds of light pollution that's invisible. So we have more and more satellite communications, cell towers, that kind of thing. Um, that's not necessarily interfering with life per se, but it is interfering with astronomy in terms of radio telescopes and that kind of thing. Professor James Lowenthal was very involved with the issue regarding purchase of streetlights here in Northampton. Do you know if he's going to talk about that? Uh, I'm sure he will a a bit. And uh, so certainly one of the things with that is getting LEDs that are a little less blue. So LEDs, um, you know, somebody won the Nobel Prize in 2014 for creating a blue LED because our white LEDs are just a mixture of red and green and blue. And blue is a hard physics problem, as it turns out. Um, but they kind of mix them a little bit. I, I barely yeah. got through ninth grade biology. <laughs> sure. If we could, we could yeah. keep this on yeah. my level, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, Thank you. yeah. Well, I, 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 I don't understand, uh, Kirsten Nordstrom, yeah. what the blue means, what the significance of the different colors in light. Yeah, so basically uh, we have, you know, our receptors are red, green, and blue. So if you see uh, red, green, and blue mixed together, that is the same as white light to us from the sun, sort of. Uh, Not really, though. Um, The LEDs, the way they've mixed the light, it's much more blue than natural sunlight. Um, And blue light, as I said before, scatters more. um, And that's just kind of simple physics. So if you think about, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, let, let, let me give you let, right. let me give you let Simple. me give you a bad analogy. That's so if, I, if I were to throw some powder um, in this room versus throwing some sand, which would kind of cloud up the room a little bit more? The powder. The powder, because it's finer particles. So that's kind of a mechanical analog for what's happening with the light uh, particles, so to speak. Is the blue light is actually smaller wavelength than the red, scatters more, kind of interferes with us more. One aspect of the SciTech Cafe that I love, the times I've been there, is the way the kids mm-hmm. ask the best questions. And I'm wondering how you have managed to turn the SciTech Cafe, which is, sounds kind of weighty, mm-hmm. into something that is a real community event and involves persons with all of all ages, literally, and and have a wide spectrum of their knowledge, and yet it engages 
everyone. Can you spend a minute with us yeah. on that? I mean, uh, one thing, of course, is we keep it free. Uh, we have snacks and prizes to bribe people to attend. So we have prizes for best questions. And a good, a good solid about half of our time is devoted to uh, questions from the audience. And some of the best questions come from kids or from adults who actually don't know anything about physics. You said, I only have ninth grade physics. How can I possibly ask I said ask ninth grade good- biology. The idea <laughs> of a physics uh, course Yeah. Was- How can I possibly ask a good question? Some of the best questions are from that level, kind of just like, can you actually explain this particular thing? And usually the scientists might say, oh, my God, that's the best question I've ever heard. Nobody's asked that question before. And we usually get some really insightful conversations just from that you know, half hour or so of audience Q&A. I have to ask, Professor, have you ever gotten feedback from somebody who had attended a SciTech cafe and fell in love with science as a result of that, that experience? Um, I, I mean, we definitely have the people who come every month. Uh, we have uh, one of my favorite people uh, who comes every month is like, this is me and my husband's uh, monthly date night and this is the thing we do and none of us are scientists <laughs> neither romantic. of us are scientists um, but we've had some kids that we've seen kind of grow up uh, throughout the years and they're kind of going down that track and you know it's probably not us that's necessarily doing that but we're not hurting we think um, and we're just trying to get the public exposed to like what scientists think about what they actually do um, and and really just uh, create a sense of like this is what I do uh, I want to talk to you to, y- to you all about it because we're often busy teaching classes or doing other things. Um, so this gives the scientists who speak a chance to actually uh, talk to members of the public. Yeah. Professor James Lowenthal will be the speaker at the SciTech Cafe doing the Q&A, of course, tomorrow evening at Abandoned Building Brewery in East Hampton. Doors open at 6 o'clock. The presentation will begin at 6.30. There is food. There is, of course, uh, adult beverages available as well for the adults. And anything else you want to tell us? Uh, no, it's again, it's all ages. Please come by SciTechCafe.org if you want to sign up for our mailing list, Facebook.com slash SciTechCafe. The other thing I'll just put a plug in for is we're going to do a special presentation at the Pioneer Valley Maker Fair, October 14th. So if you just Google Pioneer Valley Maker Fair, you can find out where that is. That's going to be in Holyoke uh, and find out the details there. Is there a title for Professor Lowenthal's talk tomorrow? Uh, yes, it's. I believe it's called Darkness. Why Darkness is Essential for Life. Um, let me look it that's up. A yes, that's, little... that's what I have right here. Why <laughs> Darkness is Essential Darkness for Life. Darkness at Night, Essential for Life is the official talk title. And and for those who are, it's date night, he should use candlelight. I Ooh, think. yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> oh, there's a scientific insight for you. Thank you. Okay, we really appreciate you being with us. Kristen Nordstrom is the director of the SciTech Cafe. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you, Bill. Well, you're my friend And can you see Many times We've been out drinking Many times we shared our thoughts But did you ever, ever notice the kind of thoughts I got? You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
One of the most important voices in modern Chilean music is coming to UMass. Nano Stern at Falker Auditorium, Monday, October 2nd. It was 50 years ago, the fall of 1973, when a military coup d'etat removed the popular elected president, Salvador Allende, ushering in 17 years of brutal oppression under the right-wing dictator, Augusto Pinochet. Singer, poet, teacher, and activist Victor Jara was tortured and killed, his body tossed in the street. At this appearance at UMass, Nano Stern will perform songs from his latest album, Nano Stern Canta a Victor Jara, plus the North American premiere of We Will Be Singing by September, a documentary on the history and transcendence of Chilean protest music during the socialist government of Allende. Nano Stern will engage the audience in a dialogue about the film and the influence of resistance music. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Chilean singer and political activist Nano Stern, Monday, October 2nd, Balcar Auditorium at UMass Amherst. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabaga, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome to our show Peggy Gillespie, who is the author and the creator of the exhibit Love Makes a Family, a controversial exhibit that you may recall from some years ago. She is the founder and director of the Family Diversity Project, and she is here with us because we want you to know about the event occurring Friday, this Friday, September 29th at APE Gallery here in Northampton, free and open to the public. Everyone is welcome because, well, everyone is welcome. Peggy Gillespie, Let's spend a minute. What is the Family Diversity Project? And then we're going to talk about your book, Authentic Selves, and we're going to talk about the uh, event that is going on with Leslie and Newman as well. But let's start. You're the founder and co-director of the Family Diversity Project. What is it? What is it? It is an organization where we started back in 1993 to create an exhibit, first of all, on multiracial families called Of Many Colors. And as a journalist, I wrote an article for the Boston Globe magazine. Then people started want the exhibit, was very popular, went through all the schools in Amherst. And then since then... Didn't we have to sue them to have the exhibit in the Amherst That, that was the Love Makes a Family, the one on LGBT okay. families. Um, when we actually said we have a second exhibit that we decided to do, uh, this is Gigi Kayser, the photographer, and I. The s- superintendent of schools at that point said... It's going to make kids think about sex, and so we can't show it in the elementary schools, Love Makes a Family. So that started a year-long controversy that was all over the AP because five families sued the schools and the superintendent, 
to stop the exhibit from going in. Yes, a lawsuit I remember fondly. Yes, I'm sure. (laughs) Thank goodness we've gotten beyond that, huh? Oh, really not. (laughs) Unfortunately, um, I mean, and since then we did many other exhibits. We have eight of them, including one that I started the day Trump was elected, Building Bridges, Portraits of Immigrants and Refugees. We have one on mental illness. And that's, so our organization is a nonprofit that tries to uh, create pro- projects, exhibits that often are published as books to fight injustice and uh, prejudice and help students. They go into colleges, they go into churches and temples, they go into libraries all over the country. Um, and uh, our goal has always been to educate and uplift respect for all people everywhere um, that's what we do. Tell us about the event that's occurring this Friday, September 29th from 5.30 to 7.30 at APE Gallery here in Northampton, please. Sure. Well, Authentic Selves is the latest project that I did, um, which is uh, the subtitle is Celebrating Trans and Non-Binary People and Their Families. And it was published as a book back in this May by Skinner House. And then I did the exhibit, which is now four copies traveling the country and one stop is APE Gallery, and it's going to open as an exhibit on Wednesday, the 27th, from 12 to 5, and Thursday, 12 to 5. But Friday, we have the special event, um, which is going to start at 5.30, and at 6, we're going to have speakers, and that's going to include about six or seven people from the book and the exhibit, which will be surrounding everybody. Uh, there'll be a book signing by all the people that are in it. Um, and then Leslie Newman, the nationally acclaimed author of Heather Has Two Mommies and 80 other books, um, has a new book coming out called uh, Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard. And she will be there presenting the book, reading from it. And then we'll have a book signing at the end. For both for both Leslie and for yourselves, for yourself with regard to authentic selves. Yes, yes exactly. And because we feel like this partnership that we're both um, have been engaged in forever uh, in terms of raising awareness about LGBTQ plus rights and respect. So Peggy Gillespie, Authentic Selves, Celebrating Trans and Non-Binary People and Their Families, is an exhibit that will be at APE. It is also a beautiful book, and it is filled with these spectacular photos. It's rare that I I'm frustrated by being on radio, but this is one time I want to hold up the book and say, look at these photos. Maybe you could share with our listeners a bit of what is in the book in addition to, well, really amazing interviews by you. Well, um, thank you for the kind words. Uh, The book um, has 35 individuals and their family members, ranging from spouses to chosen family to um, their children, all speaking about their lives as trans or non-binary people, and then the family talking about their journey to acceptance, love, um, caring for the people in their lives who are trans and non-binary. So the same with the exhibit, only the text is much, much more brief on the walls. The book, it was hard. These were all remarkable people. I interviewed a lot of them on Zoom because of COVID, and it was all over, you know, all over the country that I spoke to people. Every single one of them. I don't think I made it through an interview without crying, to be honest. Um, and we really why because what was so moving? Well, what is well? It's a mixture. It, it's people who have to suffer and be bullied, 
and be um, right now, as you said, the laws are changing and targeting LGBTQ youth, particularly trans youth right now. Um, and it's very painful to hear these stories that were unnecessary, people being tortured, um, bullied, um, treated with disdain by sometimes their biological families or their adoptive families um, and having to seek other ways to their authentic selves. Others were embraced by their families right from the start, and those stories brought tears of joy to my eyes. But I did interview some very old people, like uh, grandmothers and uh, 80-year-old mothers who didn't get it at first and went on this journey with their child. And one of them, I, I, I mean, brings tears to my eyes now thinking about this person. Uh, this mother said, my, my daughter, Lana, who was uh, assigned male at birth, my daughter, Lana, is the same child that I birthed out of my womb, and I will always love oh, this child. And I'm getting shivers because it was said with such love and understanding because they were educated, because they learned by loving someone who is trans that there's not, no difference. It's just, you know, I don't understand, to be honest, why anybody hates people, LGBT people or people of color or any, any hatred. I don't get it. But these people are, are just contributing, loving members of, of our society and have nothing that they are that will harm anybody. But Peggy Gillespie, that's, that's really my question for you. You've dedicated your life to um, uh, trying to uh, garner acceptance of all people, whoever they are, wherever they come from. But for people who are really engaged in otherism, who resent people because they're not the same color, they're not the same religion, they're not the same attitudes about gender and sexual orientation, how do you approach, other than being angry at them and trying <laughs> to show them they're misguided, and other than the woman you just described so tenderly, uh, how do you get people to change and recognize that their otherism is unnecessary and inappropriate and destructive? How do you do that? Well, our my hope is that having an exhibit in a school, like, for example, the common school recently showed authentic selves. In every grade level, age three, the kids learned pronouns. They learned to not have hatred or otherism fill their hearts when they're little. So I'm, I'm a proponent of starting early to educate. And, um, but how, how do we you know, address these people that really are filled with anger and hatred? I mean, there are the people we'll never convince um, on the extreme far, we'll say far wrong too many or right, or whatever you want to call it. But um, I, I think it's like introducing people to individuals. A lot of people say, I don't know anybody trans. I, I, I'll give you an example. I had, there was an article in the Smith Alumni Quarterly about this book and me because I went there. And um, somebody wrote to me in, from my cl class of 69, long time ago, and said, um, I saw that article and I thought, oh, well, that's weird meaning that I always thought about trans people as weird and different and other. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to get that book. It's by my classmate. Got the book, and I'm in the middle of it, and I'm, I'm in tears. Um, I have learned so much. I've changed my attitude completely. Um, and that was, that was the kind of a person that maybe wasn't far, far an extreme, but just didn't get it just being introduced to these stories, and they are powerful stories. I don't know if you read any of them yet, Bill. They, they are. I would like to know how you found these people who you interviewed. 
And how, and did they, was there an issue for them in terms of saying, sure, I'll share my story because they're very public and they're very private in some instances. Yes. Um, I, I will. Let me just finish the, the one thing about convincing people to not other and disrespect people is it's okay if you don't understand something, but it's not okay to act out of hatred. And um, I think it's, again, I think it starts young with teachers and educating parents to, to understand that our obligation in this world, um, I, I always support the Dalai Lama's statement of religion, um, his, my only religion is kindness. And if that were the religion of the world, what a different place we would be in. And so I guess I can only say that we try to, to teach people by introducing them to, to um, people who are in the diversity of the human condition. We'll say how I found the people. Um, it was uh, by putting out notices every, on Facebook, by, but there was a photographer who um, did about 15 of the families from Georgia. He... Uh, or they, I believe, used they pronouns, got um, about 15 families for me. And then just word of mouth, spreading the word through PFLAG, a fabulous organization. They found a lot of people for me all over the South. PFLAG is an acronym. Yes, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. But they, they're celebrating their 50th year, and they co collaborated with us on this book in terms of promoting it. And the important thing about them is that they were the first national organization to support trans people. There will be a reading and book signing for Peggy Gillespie's Authentic Selves, celebrating trans and non-binary people and their families, and Leslie and Newman's Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard, along with the photo exhibit and a panel. This will be Friday, this Friday, September 29th, from 530 to 730 at APE Gallery here in Northampton. Peggy Gillespie, thank you for this spectacularly important, wonderful... The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-740. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. President Biden is about to head to the United Auto Workers picket line in Michigan, where he'll offer support to Union President Sean Fain. Correspondent Nancy Cordes is at the White House. President Biden is going to fly to Detroit to stand with picketing UAW workers from Wayne County. A reminder, among other things, they are seeking a 36 percent raise over four years 
and they want to extend union protections to workers at 10 electric vehicle battery factories. Things are looking up in Hollywood after a tentative agreement in the writer's strike. CBS's Elise Preston. There's a lot of optimism among writers here. Picketing has stopped and the WGA is considering officially lifting the strike to allow writers to get back to work within the next 24 hours. Today, the WGA board and council will vote to move the deal forward. Then over the next few weeks, writers will decide whether to officially accept the new terms. Contract talk still stalled in the actor strike. Now to finances in Washington, D.C. Correspondent Jared Hill has the update. Congress is in crisis mode with just five days until a government shutdown. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy frustrated with his own party. Why would they want to stop paying the troops or stop paying the border agents or the coast? guard. I don't understand how that makes you stronger. I don't understand what point you're trying to make. There are new signs of a COVID uptick, but if you want a new vaccine, you may have to pay for it yourself this time around. Advice from CBS News legal contributor Celine Gounder. You may want to wait until early to mid-October just for these things to get ironed out. Huh. If you do get your vaccine now, uh, you may need to resubmit or appeal a denial, but you should get it for free. A big box retailer is getting into the healthcare business. CBS's Chanel Call has the details. In a partnership with online marketplace Sesame, Costco is expanding its members-only perks to now include virtual primary healthcare for just $29. Virtual checkups involving a standard lab panel and virtual follow-ups with a doctor are listed online at $72, while virtual therapy sessions are as low as $79. Take care if you have a teenager with high blood pressure. Christian Benavides explained. Researchers tracking more than one million Swedish men for up to 50 years found that the risk for a major cardiac event, such as heart attack or stroke, was elevated if they had a blood pressure reading of 120 over 80 or an even higher reading when they were 18 years old. The Dow is down 172 points, S&P off 36. This is CBS News. If you need to hire, you need Indeed, because Indeed's all-in-one hiring solution helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Testimony from defense witnesses begins today in the murder trial of Kara Rintala. Prosecutors rested their case yesterday with the testimony of the chief medical examiner, who estimated the time of death of Anna Marie Cochran Rintala at mid to late morning to early afternoon. Dr. Thomas Andrews says the evidence does not support a time of death later than 1 p.m., which contradicts statements given by Kara Rintala. 
Rintella is on trial for the fourth time in Hampshire Superior Court for the murder of her wife in their Granby home in 2010. The remaining members of the Amherst School Committee and the Town Council will meet tonight to begin interviewing potential school committee candidates amid an ongoing Title IX investigation. School Committee member Jennifer Shio asked whether they could see a redacted copy of the Title IX investigation into the alleged mistreatment of transgender students at the middle school, but her request was denied. I myself am not taking that as the final word. I'm going to keep pushing for transparency and I'm going to keep pushing to release as much information as possible. She says if the identifying information is removed, there is no reason why the report can't be shared. Redact as much as possible. Redact people's names. Redact identifying information. Redact whatever it needed is needed to protect people's confidentiality. I don't want to violate any individual staff's confidentiality or, or identity. That's important. But can we redact, 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 and then release as much of the report as possible so that the public and the school committee can see and read what these reports say about what happened? No members of the school committee or the public have been allowed to see copies of the completed reports yet. Mostly cloudy today. Some occasional breaks of blue sky are likely, a high of 60 to 64. Scattered clouds tonight. Chilly overnight, a low of 36 to 42. Partly to mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 66 to 70. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. going to come. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And this is uh, the segment that I always look forward to every month with um, Duke Goldman, who uh, even though it's, we're coming on playoff season only a week away, we're not talking baseball today. This is our fair play segment because change is going to come. Hello, Duke Goldman. Hey there, Buzz. Hey there, Bill. Hey there, Dan. So, you know, we came up with the name Fair Play for this segment, and very interestingly, just last week, a new book came out, and the book is called Fair Play. It's subtitled How Sports Shape the Gender Debates, written by someone named Katie Barnes, who is a journalist who identifies as non-binary, goes by they, and um, she is especially focused on the issues of transgender and intersex athletes. And this is an issue that I expect we're going to talk about in upcoming months. And I'm still learning about this issue. I just started the book. Um, I need to find out more. I believe we need evidence. Many of us, myself included, we have our impressions. We have our biases. We have our viewpoints. And those are fine. But we need to back them up with evidence. The other thing we need to do, I would say, is behave in a decent fashion. And this is something we have been seeing recently that men, not just recently, well, since time immemorial, men have behaved boorishly. 
and one of the most recent people to behave that way is a man named Luis Rubiales, who we talked about on last month's Fair Play. Luis Rubiales, president of the Spanish um, Federation of Soccer, Spanish football, no longer the president, because Luis Rubiales, after a triumphant moment for Spanish women when they had won the World Cup, he decided to force his attentions on one player, Jenny Hermoso. He forcibly kissed her in public. Then later he made it a joke about how the two of them were going to get married. And then apparently, according to prosecutors, because now this is in courts, there is a case. He is on trial for sexual assault and coercion. And the prosecutors say that allegedly he pressured Hermoso to speak out in his favor. Now, this individual also made a gesture towards his crotch at in public at the uh, Spanish soccer game in which Spain won the World Cup. And he had the presence of mind to apologize for that. But rather than apologizing for his abysmal behavior, he has doubled down. He has been defiant. And in fact, his for a brief time, his mother went on a hunger strike um, because she felt he had been wronged. This is what we see over and over again, I think, in society. We're seeing it here in America where we have a presidential candidate who continues to double down and refuse to acknowledge his boorish, horrible behavior, that being Donald Trump. So we see this all over the world. Here we are in 2023, and there are so many issues going on, and I want to spend time looking at the issues of women in sports. And also look back to our history because 50 years ago last week, Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs on September 20th, 1973 in what was then known as the Battle of the Sexes at the Houston Astrodome. And she beat him in three straight sets. Um, she played him three sets. The women's game normally plays best two out of three, but she played him in three sets and she won 6-4, 6-3, 6-3 to an audience of 50 million people. I remember I was 11 years old and I watched that event on TV and it was groundbreaking. What do you think would have been the difference had Bobby Riggs defeated Billie Jean King? Well... I think it would have been damaging in many ways. He had actually defeated Margaret Court, another top women's player, in a two-set match a few months previously. And Billie Jean King was still the leading tennis player, uh, winning most of the women's championships, and she was standing up for her gender. And if she had lost, it would have added credence to the notion that men are automatically better than women. Now, let's let's be you know, honest here, we were talking about a 56-year-old man facing a 29-year-old man, but Bobby Riggs was, in fact, a top male player, and Billie Jean King beat him in a match. And, you know, what else is interesting, um, I love reading our local gazette, and I love our local um, um, institutions. I did want to mention that Fair Play, the book, is available at Broadside Books, which is where I got it, and I know they still have a copy there. Where, While uh, the Gazette uh, has a regular column where they uh, feature things that happened 50 years ago. On Saturday, they have 200 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, and one of the entries 
on Saturday for 50 years ago was this. Some 500 Smith College students poured out of their dormitories Thursday night in a spontaneous celebration of Billie Jean King's tennis victory over Bobby Riggs. The students marched through the campus chanting and singing for some 50 minutes before the demonstration ended at about midnight. Duke Oban, could you reflect back a little bit more on this? Because as I recall the event, Bobby Riggs went out of his way to portray himself as a chauvinist pig. He wanted to be known as that. And that played into a fair amount of the uh, public attention that was given to this uh, sports event of the century. Yes, it did. And he did portray himself as a male chauvinist pig. And in those days, that could be a badge of honor. At the same time, I would say this was part of the hype. It was a performance. Billie Jean King got brought in by a, a group of so-called uh, Roman slaves, if you will, carried on a pallet, and, and they were, you know, blowing it up for public attention. And actually later, Bobby Riggs has now passed away, but Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs were, were friendly later. So, um, yes, he did portray himself as a male chauvinist pig, but in the end, he conceded to a, a better player, a superior player. And it was quite an event. And as you see, the Smith College students reacted strongly to the notion that, that we do that in this area, right? We celebrate things. And they celebrated her, her winning uh, against Bobby Riggs. Now, interestingly enough, just before that, the same year, 1973, for the first time in the U.S. Open, the women got equal pay in the tennis matches. For winning the 1973 U.S. Open, the women got the same pay as the men. And I just discovered why. It wasn't the intent of the U.S. Tennis Association to pay the women equally. Banned deodorant gave $55,000 in prize money so that the women would make the same amount as the men. And it took 34 more years for Wimbledon to come along and do the same thing. And we are still fighting some of these battles in 2023. 34 years in order for Wimbledon, after, 34 years after the U.S. Open made prize money even for men and women, 34 years for Wimbledon to equalize the prize money for when, men and women tennis players? I, I didn't know that. I find it appalling. Yeah. Well, we don't. We, we still see that battle being fought in other women's athletic events. And let's remember, back then, at the same time, 51 years ago, Title IX of the Civil Rights Act, the education amendments declared, and Congress voted for this, um, 37 words in which they said, no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, which wasn't originally meant as a purely sports uh, um, uh, piece of, of, of law, but it was then applied so that women would get equal funding in colleges. But that has also been battled out in the courts, and these battles are playing today. Still, uh, even in the Amherst, uh, the regional, Amherst Pelham Regional School System, it's being battled out today. I wanted to circle back, Duke Goldman, to the book Fair Play by Katie Barnes, which you um, led with, 
uh, which is a book. I, I want to ask you about the controversy, and I'm putting air quotes around controversy surrounding trans athletes, um, because Katie Barnes, in, in their book, Katie Barnes talks about uh, just that, the controversy around trans athletes. Um, could you sort of outline for us what that controversy is in terms of competitive advantages that um, uh, those who were uh, assigned male gender and change their gender to female and whether or not they should be competing with other uh, athletes who were assigned a female gender at birth. Could you tell us, what are your insights about that? So I'm still learning on this topic, so I don't want to say I have a definitive view at this point. I want to look at the evidence. The issues that exist are in so many areas now that we have a concept of gender fluidity in our society, we have circumstances where people are changing their gender, um, the gender they were assigned at birth. And then some of those individuals, in particular, the ones we're concerned with are the ones who go from a male gender assignment at birth to a female, then compete in female competitions. And the question is, do they have an unfair advantage. And this is where I think many of us lead with our emotions or look at anecdotal pieces of evidence and say, well, of course, the, anybody who was born male, when they then compete with women, they're going to have an advantage. Men are physically stronger. Now, that that has some truth to it. Um, I, I will point out to you another thing that happened recently. The uh, In a woman's marathon, uh, a woman just ran a marathon in two hours and 11 minutes, which is about 10 minutes slower, only 10 minutes, less than 10% slower than the male record, which is about two hours and one minute. They are, women are coming closer and closer in that field to being equal to men. So there's even some debates about the degree of advantage that exists. So what needs to be studied, and it is being studied, and Katie Barnes's book, which I am going to go through and look at very carefully, presents the evidence that already to date has been gathered to look at whether men who have transitioned to women who have had hormonal treatments, whether they still have physical advantages or not. And I think that has to be looked at carefully. Trying to put aside one's preconceptions and study what is the actual performance circumstance. We are talking with Duke Goldman. This is our Fair Play segment where we look at sports, at the location where it intersects with social justice. We're going to continue that conversation right after this.
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. It's family fun and football this Saturday at McGurk Alumni Stadium as Massachusetts football is home to take on Arkansas State. Kickoff is set for 3.30 p.m. and lots open for tailgating at 11.30 a.m. Join us as we recognize members of the UMass 2023 Hall of Fame class. We're also taking a look at the health of ourselves and our planet during the game. For tickets this Saturday for UMass against Arkansas State, visit umassathletics.com tickets. We'll see you there. Go you! You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Duke Goldman in our Fair Play segment. We're talking about gender and sports. Duke. Well, one thing I want to recognize here is that we are white males, the three of us, who are uh, Bill and Buzz and I and, and, well, really Dan as well, um, who are a club, um, a club he might not want to join right at the moment, but here he is. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, um, a club that has is boorish in much of its behavior, and we are talking about issues of of women and gender, and we are not women, and we want to elevate and recognize the female voices. And I know you folks have done this in the past and brought uh, women athletes and coaches on and. I fully expect as we continue to talk about these issues that we will have female voices on air. I think that we as men have to recognize the behavior that that our gender has engaged in and we can contribute by being allies to the women and recognizing and calling out bad behavior like that of Luis Rubiales, like that of Donald Trump, like that of many other public figures um, in our society and in worldwide society. Duke, I also think there is in the world of bad behavior this this really important uh, uh, phenomenon of assumptions because I was very moved by a piece I saw on PBS in which which dealt with the issue of uh, trans women athletes in high school. And there was an interview with a mom uh, whose uh, 
previously son had transitioned, and she said, my son's not a superstar. Why is this, there an assumption that all men are big and strong and terrifically athletic? That's not true. I mean, he's an okay player. He was an okay player, and she is an okay player. But it's not as if uh, there was some humongous male athlete out there who's now in, on the women's team. That's not typical. That is actually atypical. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about assumptions that go into all of this that play out in really bad ways. Uh, absolutely. And I think a similar related assumption is the assumption that there are um, boys who are deciding, hey, you know, if I change my gender, I can win athletic competitions. I'm going to change my gender so that I can compete against women and win championships, which is ludicrous on its face, right? That's not why somebody is is changing their gender. Um, so we have to recognize that people are living their lives, right? And somebody who feels that their gender should be different then wants to live their life and compete. And then the question becomes, how do we create an appropriate field for fair competition? And that has to be looked at and is being looked at. Do, who, who is we? Who, uh, how do we arrive at the point where we just look at people as athletes and we're not sort of gender-focused any longer and uh, we're, we're, we're not measuring somebody by what they're assigned gender was at birth? Uh, how do we get there? Is it the media? Is it those who control the leagues? Is it uh, people like you who are sports researchers or those of us who are just spectators? Who's we? We is everybody. We is the media. We is us. We is the athletes themselves. We is our, our legal and political system. We is, as a society, how do we get to where we want to be? Um, I came across a quote from a woman named Eitan Bonmati, who plays for the Spanish soccer team. And she said, we want a return to normality improvements and to be to, to provide a good legacy for our team but not, she said not just on a sporting level but a societal level as well we want an egalitarian society in which men and women have the same rights so she as an athlete said that I think we all of us need to work towards that it's messy how do you determine what is fair that's the undercurrent of what we're talking about in this segment month after month we all of us collectively have to figure that out and we have to come up with appropriate guidelines and we're not all going to agree but we need to look at evidence as dispassionately as possible and try to come up with the best circumstances in which people can compete fairly not just in sports but on our society in our society writ large duke i don't want to uh, claim that you're being Pollyannish about this, but I think you're being Pollyannish about this. In this, in this regard, uh, abortion is now a losing issue for the right wing. That has been proven in vote after vote across the country since uh, Roe was overturned by the Supreme Court. But what the right wing has latched onto is that trans rights actually get to something that disturb a lot of people, and it is a political issue that they have latched onto as something that they 
can see as a winner to motivate their base, whether it's high school athletics and trans girls or bathrooms. They say, hi, we can exploit the other. These people are now the other, and we can get them for our own political and personal advantage. And I'm wondering if you think that is right, has currency, or if you disagree with it. Well, I disagree with the viewpoint, without a doubt, but do I think it has currency? Yes, absolutely. And that's part of the debate here. And I don't think I'm being Pollyannish. I know this is not an easy issue, and I know there are people out there that are politicizing it. So I think it has to be addressed. I think it's going to take a long time. It does take a long time, but meanwhile, uh, admittedly, I was channel surfing, when I came upon the WNBA, the Women's National Basketball Association uh, playoffs uh, the other day, and I got hooked. The quality of play is so different than what I remember even 10 years ago. Um, Women athletes are athletes more than just women playing sports. They are, um, they're wondrous in the quality of the play that I'm looking at. So, I mean, changes are going to come. Change is coming. We're, we're seeing the quality in, like you just said, a, a woman just shattered the previous woman's marathon record by two minutes, uh, the woman you alluded to earlier in that marathon race. Um, it, we're really seeing change, aren't we? We are. And then, of course, there is pushback because there are always going to be forces of traditionalism who don't want to see that. And so we're looking at very, very messy issues, difficult issues. And we're looking at an entirely new circumstance in our society in 2023. There's one big change, I think, Duke, that I would like your perspective on. And that is that women's sports are now economically competitive with male sports. The argument always was, well, women shouldn't be paid the same in tennis because they don't have the same crowds as the the men tennis players. And the WNBA shouldn't, those players don't deserve the same salaries because they don't uh, pull in the same advertising and the the same uh, crowds as the men's game. And that is changing because I think society's view of women as athletes is changing and therefore the economics change and equality to some degree will be influenced by the money. Your thoughts? Without a doubt. I mean, absolutely. You know, 20 years ago, uh, Katie Barnes referred to this in her introduction, watching the UConn women come back from a nine-point deficit to win a championship. Um, That team, in and of itself, made tremendous strides in showing how women can be dynamic and exciting on the basketball court and increasingly women's sports are bringances and bringing in sponsorships look billy jean king got equal pay because a company selling a deodorant decided it was worth sponsoring 50 years ago look how far we've come to the point where now people's eyeballs are on these tremendous and dynamic women athletes and athletes of varying genders as well. This is a new frontier and it is one that is bringing up so many debates and issues and politicized viewpoints. So it's something we have to address. And Duke Goldman, thank you so much for continuing to address it and keep our eyeballs on these important issues that um, I think, frankly, it makes us and the world of sports better. Thank you, Duke Goldman. My pleasure. 
We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to our own representative in the Governor's Council, Tara Jacobs. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Testimony from defense witnesses begins today in the murder trial of Kara Rintala. Prosecutors rested their case yesterday with the testimony of the chief medical examiner who estimated the time of death of Anna Marie Cochran Rintala at mid to late morning to early afternoon. Dr. Thomas Andrews says the evidence does not support a time of death later than 1 p.m., which contradicts statements given by Kara Rintala. Rintala is on trial for the fourth time in Hampshire Superior Court for the murder of her wife in their Granby home in 2010. The remaining members of the Amherst School Committee and the Town Council will meet tonight to begin interviewing potential school committee candidates amid an ongoing Title IX investigation. School Committee member Jennifer Shio asked whether they could see a redacted copy of the Title IX investigation into the alleged mistreatment of transgender students at the middle school, but her request was denied. I myself am not taking that as the final word. I'm going to keep pushing for transparency and I'm going to keep pushing to release as much information as possible. She says if the identifying information is removed, there is no reason why the report can't be shared. Redact as much as possible. Redact people's names. Redact identifying information. Redact whatever it needed is needed to protect people's confidentiality. I don't want to violate any individual staff's confidentiality or, or identity. That's important. But can we redact, 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 and then release as much of the report as possible so that the public and the school committee can see and read what these reports say about what happened? No members of the school committee or the public have been allowed to see copies of the completed reports yet. Mostly cloudy today. Some occasional breaks of blue sky are likely, a high of 60 to 64. Scattered clouds tonight, chilly overnight, a low of 36 to 42. Partly to mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 66 to 70. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Caminito Steakhouse in downtown Northampton? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Caminito Steakhouse in downtown Northampton is all about its steak and a whole lot more. An eclectic menu, a great bar area, and a superior wine list make Caminito Steakhouse a great place for a special night out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with 
without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are really pleased to have in studio someone we haven't seen for a while. I I think we haven't seen since the campaign. It is our governor council's representative, governor councilor um, for our district, Tara Jacobs. Thank you so much for joining us. Thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Have we seen you since you won the election or were you a candidate the last time we spoke? I feel like it might have been right around election time. Yeah, I think it's been a while. It's been too long. It's been too long. So thank you for, for joining us. And uh, I, I just want to start, I think we have to start at the beginning. What is the Governor's Council and what is your role on it? It's funny because that's how I always start every event is to start by helping people uh, understand exactly what Governor's it's, it's Council is. It's so interesting. Is. It's always on the ballot. People check it off and then they say, what is this exactly? It's funny you say that because a lot of people leave it blank because they don't know what it is. (laughs) So um, just in brief, Governor's Council is um, a group of eight districts. I am District 8, Western Mass. The best district, the most important. I think so. It's definitely the largest district geographically. Um, And we work with the governor to give advice and consent on her nominees to judicial postings. So judges, all the judges, all the way up to Supreme Judicial Court, um, parole board, uh, when the parole board recommends to the governor pardons or commutations, we give advice and consent in those matters as well. Uh, it's one of the things I want to talk to you about today. So it's been yeah, very exciting. Yeah, I'm excited about some of the work you've been yes. doing. Yes, and um, there's literally a number of smaller roles that uh, come before us for advice and consent as well. Um, for instance, we, we weigh in on if um, if in an unfortunate situation with a judge's medical condition, they want a medical retirement, we give advice and consent, things like that too. You didn't mention clerk magistrates. Clerk magistrates. It goes on and on. It, it literally does. We have so many roles that come through us for advice and consent and special circumstances that pop up as well. And then um, also uh, one of the things that we've really been spending most of our time doing while we're waiting for nominees to start coming in, we give advice uh, and consent to approve state funds going out. It's called warrants on the treasury. So literally every dollar that's in our state budget comes through governor's council for release. So we will approve billions of dollars. And I want to just go back. You, Councillor Jacob, uh, your district includes all of Berkshire, I think all of Franklin and most of Hampshire and Hamden. Is that right? And a little bit of Worcester County, too. I have 102 cities and towns, uh, all of the 413 and then a tiny bit of Central Mass as well. You're visiting all of them? I'm, I am. I have, I have not slowed my pace since the campaign days. I'm out there uh, hustling. And, uh, yeah, I get out to um, – I'm vid- I've been doing kind of a listening and, and learning tour, so I've been uh, traveling around. So we spent a lot of time during your campaign and the campaign for governor's council uh, talking about all of the different responsibilities that governor's counselors have. Uh, the primary one that people know about is you approve judges. There's a lot of others, and Maybe. you have not been approving so many judges. So how are you keeping yourself busy? So, yes, to your point, um, 
usually uh, when things are flowing in the normal state of affairs, we will be in the state house every Wednesday for governor's council. We've been meeting every three weeks right now um, to approve those warrants in the treasury that I mentioned, approve lists of notary public and justice of the peace, and occasionally a special something. So we've done two members of parole board. One was a reappointment and one was a new member. We just um, gave advice and consent and confirmed. And she's fabulous. I'm we very excited. Dr. Charlene Bonner, I think that that's read. the reappointment. Um, it's that's for the parole board. Parole Parole board. And what the parole board decides, how does the parole board work? What's its jurisdiction? So the parole board is a state board. Um, the members of the parole board, there should be seven. Right now we have five. There's two openings still uh, to be filled. Um, and they serve uh, seven-year ter seven terms, five-year terms, I forget, I'm sorry. Um, but their role is they literally travel around the state to our prisons to hold hearings for um, people who've uh, applied for their parole and will either, you know, they'll do a risk assessment and they'll either give the parole or they will do a pushback and tell them to come back in X number of years. Um, it is something I'd love to talk about to you more about. Um, but uh, we did just, it's actually kind of a historic moment, um, a new member of the parole board has just joined and her name is Sarah Coughlin and she is the very first social worker to join the parole board. So I'm very excited about that. One of your that. colleagues. Um, well, uh, I don't really do social work, but um, but I very much wanted to see social work on that board. It's one of the things I've been advocating for. I also am hoping that we will see someone with lived experience having been incarcerated. Yeah, could you, could you, could you stop there? Because I've been reading about this, and I'd like to know what the possibilities are that someone with lived experience, that is to say someone who has been in the criminal justice mm -hmm. system, may be put on the parole board, a perspective that board I think could desperately use. I'm wondering, is that real? What's happening? What do you say? Well, so ultimately, uh, that's a question for the governor because we can because only Because the governor makes the in, appointments and you right. have to approve or disapprove, exactly. but you don't get to make the appointment. Right. So we have no control over who gets nominated, although I try to influence and persuade as much as I can. But um, I think there's a real good chance at it, and it really comes down to the governor's perspective on it. Because um, in, I want to say, 2018, there was a legislative a judicial review report that included parole board, and they one of the many many recommendations they made was to balance the diversity of perspective at the parole board to include social work, but also to include incarcerated lived experience. And um, actually, our very own Lindsay Sabadosa has a bill on parole reform right now that actually would codify. Um, actually extend, and I think this is so important too, extending from seven to nine people, make it a larger board. They are so overworked right now that it's really a needed fix. Um, but to actually codify that there will always be, right now um, we already have a uh, forensic psychologist, but to make that a, a mandatory thing, social work and incarcerated lived experience. So if that bill can get some traction and, and does get passed, um, then the governor would have to make that appointment. Would have to. The next, now, uh, the next appointment. Any, all of our governors going forward, unless they change the law, that would become a law. Meanwhile, our governor, um, I just am so happy to be joining during her administration, is actually interested in, in these things that potentially she could do as an executive order or whatever. Um, but if it became a law, then it would just it would live beyond and into other administrations. As the well. other proposed, the other bill that I think we just spoke about with Mindy Dom, Representative Dom. Uh, is about compassionate release. That is, people who have, who, who deserve to be. Could you talk to us about what compassionate release is and what role you will play, if any? 
Well, I mean, it's, it does fall more on the legislative side. Um, the parole board, we nominate, we confirm people to the parole board, and they would be able to weigh in on those decisions, so it would really rest with them. What we is don't compassionate have the release? So if somebody has um, medical or dementia or Alzheimer's or some other um, end-of-life type of medical situation, and we have so many seniors who are incarcerated, um, it's a compassionate medical parole where um, it, it's based much more on the stage of life that they are in and kind of with compassionate care, releasing them into their uh, ideally supportive community. And that's, I think to me that's the question is do they have a supportive community? Do they have some place to go? Because to me it's not compassionate to release someone who doesn't have a home plan, right? And now they're, they've been incarcerated for a very long time and they're in a whatever medical state and they definitely need to have a place that's going to be a soft space to land. And assuming they do have a soft place to land, counselor. Tari Jacobs, are you in support of compassionate release? Fully, fully, of course, yes. Um, yeah, I don't know how much more time we have, but I... I well, we're, I think this is a good time to take a break, and then we're going to have plenty of time. There's so much to talk to you about, so including the about. judicial uh, the, the, the process for approving judges or giving advice and consent with respect to uh, applicants for judgeships. We'll be right back. We're talking to Governor's Council uh, member Tara Jacobs. Be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. One of the most important voices in modern Chilean music is coming to UMass. Nano Stern at Falker Auditorium, Monday, October 2nd. It was 50 years ago, the fall of 1973, when a military coup d'etat removed the popular elected president, Salvador Allende, ushering in 17 years of brutal oppression under the right-wing dictator, Augusto Pinochet. Singer, poet, teacher, and activist Victor Jara was tortured and killed, his body tossed in the street. At this appearance at UMass, Nano Stern will perform songs from his latest album, Nano Stern Canta a Victor Jara, plus the North American premiere of We Will Be Singing by September a documentary on the history and transcendence of Chilean protest music during the socialist government of Allende. Nano Stern will engage the audience in a dialogue about the film and the influence of resistance music. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Chilean singer and political activist Nano Stern, Monday, October 2nd, Balcar Auditorium at UMass Amherst. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with our governor's counselor, Tara Jacobs. Uh, Tara, during the break, we started talking about pardons, something that runs dear to 
Bill Newman's and my heart and something that you have been um, thinking a lot about and working on a lot. Can you talk to us about, first of all, the governor's council's relationship to this notion of pardons, what a pardon is, and second of all, what you've been doing in that regard? So we give advice and consent uh, if the governor brings forward recommended pardons. And if given, a pardon becomes a clean slate. It literally scrubs away um, the offense. And so... So Dan was asking, what's the difference between a commutation and a pardon? So in a commutation is a situation where someone is incarcerated and um, is looking for release. So it commutes the sentence, it shortens the sentence, and they can uh, be released. Uh, and, and it's a recognition generally of some kind of a miscarriage of justice. Um, I am just so happy and proud of our administration for out of the gate, early in the administration, bringing pardons to governor's council. Um, it, it, the trend in, in the last few um, administrations going back has been to really um, use very lightly these, these uh, clemency opportunities. And the Baker administration waited until the end, basically, to bring some forward. But um, within months to have the Healy administration bring to us two separate packets of uh, it's been a total of 11 pardons now. We had seven and then another four. Um, it's just tremendous and brave and, and uh, says a lot. Those pardons were generally for old convictions, as I understand it, going back some years. People have been released long ago, but what it right. does is wipe the slate clean and say you are no longer a convicted person. Exactly. And so these are people who um, the crime was committed in some instances 50 years ago, decades ago. Um, and, uh, but that conviction is having an impact on their, on their life and, and holding them back from living fully. And, um, one of the things that I noticed and I commented on it in one of our governor's council, um, meetings is that the vast majority, almost without exception, there might've been one exception. These were offenses that occurred when these were teenagers, Right. So emerging adults who cognitively were still developing and consequences and impulse control or issues in that age. And the things that they did were often so minor, it's boggling that they were even prosecuted, let alone convicted and then still having an impact all these years later. Um, but the the emotional weight of this work, just the impact, it's so inspiring. It's so um, it just you can you can feel the oppressive lingering effects of these convictions on people's lives and the weight that is lifted when they get their pardon is just phenomenal so i've been so happy to be a part of that work so enthusiastic to support it well counselor terry jacobs well first of all i want to ask you before i ask you the next question because you ran against attorneys people <laughs> who were um involved in the criminal justice system and whose career involved the criminal justice system. That was not the case for you. What made you care so deeply about the criminal justice system? Because a lot of what the governor's council does, whether it's uh, giving advice and consent on a, a judicial application for a judge or a clerk magistrate or a parole board member, it involves that system which you weren't immersed in. Why? 
It's funny. I had forgotten I'd even done this, but uh, about a year and a half before I even decided to run for governor's council, I had kickstarted a game called The Disparity Trap that's all about the systemic injustice in our in our prison system nationally. Um, but definitely we have it present here in Massachusetts as well. And so it's it's been, uh, it's not uh, an overstatement to say this is something that's been of concern to me for years and years and years, going way, way back. Um, and it's why I was so excited to run for governor's council is that I saw it as an opportunity to be a part of a change, a part of um, really getting that close eyeball to our, our judicial system, what the systemic problems are, seeing where there's opportunities to you know, diagnose a problem and suggest solutions to people in power. Uh, and that's what I've been doing. So I've been I've been touring our courts, but I've also been touring our prisons and our jails. I've been talking to incarcerated people uh, about their experience with the parole board, about their experience with judges, and then infusing that into um, my work vetting parole board members and judicial applicants. Um, we haven't gotten a nominee yet, but I've talked to many people who've applied who are interested in, in introducing themselves to me. And, and so I, I infuse that learning that I've been doing into, into that, but also advocate to our governor, advocate, advocate to our legislators on here's some clear and, and sometimes not that hard to fix necessarily uh, kind of simple things um, to, to kind of help them in the work they're doing to affect reform. So, Tara Jacobs, I'd like to know this. The Governor's Council, as I said in the previous segment, is known for its responsibility to confirm or not judges who are nominated by the governor who have been vetted by the Judicial Nominating Council. Governor Baker filled <laughs> judicial slots at an enormous rate. I mean, he appointed the entire, almost the entire Supreme Judicial Court, the Appeals Court, uh, Superior Court judges, District Court judges, clerk magistrates. I mean, it was get him in, get him in, get him in, get him in, get him in. And it was a, it was just a stampede to get his people into judicial, or judicial positions. Is there anything left? <laughs> it's funny you say it. So yes, that was definitely true. And they were, you know, when I said they usually are, a governor's council meets on, you know, once a week on Wednesday, at the end of the Baker administration, they were meeting, they were having hearings almost every day of the week to get it all done because there was just such a barrage. Right, because, we're gonna, yeah. because he was going to make sure that those Republicans got, <laughs> well, okay, I shouldn't, I should slow down. People who well, he they, wished to nominate were confirmed and took those positions. There was a wonderful piece in the Boston Globe and they created a new verb. He Mitch McConnell'd. <laughs> our judicial system. He definitely. So, but having said that, I know that the the JNC that you mentioned is working overtime right now. What is the JNC? So it's the Judicial Nominating Commission that actually is, uh, um, it is expanded. It's now 27 lawyers who are appointed by the governor by and chief legal counsel kind of work to, you know, recruit um, a really fantastic new group. There's some holdovers from prior years. So they sort of but screen all, all the. They're lawyers a new who do the vetting. Position. They vet. Uh, first, they do a blind vetting, and then they'll do in person. Once they've they kind of called their list, they'll do in person interviews, and then they will do due diligence on the applicants before they move on to the next stage of the pipeline, which includes. Uh, interviews with the governor, lieutenant governor, chief legal counsel, and there's a group called the JBC, which is the point. Oh, sorry, joint bar uh, committee, and they um, they will also do their their version of vetting and due diligence before eventually it gets back to the governor for nomination, and then at the end of all of that, it comes to governor's council. So uh, I can speak from personal experience. It's happened to me 
a number of times. It'll happen to the Bill Newmans and the Buzz Eisenbergs. It will get calls as part of that vetting. Hey, you had an experience with attorney so-and-so. What was your experience? And could you tell us what, what did you like? What did you not like? What was fair, yeah. not fair? in the vetting process that finally brings an applicant up to that next stage that you're talking about. Right. There's multiple levels of due diligence, and they spread a pretty wide net because they want to hear, you know, obviously uh, when you apply, you you send in people who you know are supporters, but they want to hear really the full holistic impression that the community has. So they will call people that did a case uh, as an opponent, opposing uh, counsel or um, judges who have uh, sat or clients. like They really do try to get the full, the full scope of impressions. In the couple of minutes that we have left, Tara Jacobs, I just want to talk about you for a moment. So you have the statewide responsibility. You have a region-wide responsibility because you represent these more than 100 communities, uh, municipalities that you, in fact, represent in all or parts of five different counties. But you also, in North Adams... I remember that you were, like my wife, a longtime library trustee, so that you could give public service not only statewide and regionally, but locally. Are you still a library trustee? I am chair of our trustees at the library. And are you still on the North Adams School Committee? I sure am, yes. Are you insane? (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the local, uh, being involved in your local, whether they're boards or you run for an office or you're appointed or or just volunteer, the change you can affect locally is so impactful and so important and so meaningful to me. So I am still involved with these things. Um, We will see. Like as, As the nominees start coming in from the governor and we start to ramp up and get busier, I may reevaluate. But right now it's been, I've been able to juggle all the balls in the air. Are there, back to my question, are there in fact openings on yes. courts that need to be filled? Desperately. Will, will, will yes. Governor so, Healy have that? And in Western Mass, too. So there's a, over 30 judicial postings that are open, that applications have been coming in. They're being, they're being, due diligence is happening. I anticipate. I mean, I, I expected by August we would see some, so it's it's definitely taking longer than I had anticipated. But any time now, we're going to start to get the judicial nominees start rolling in because there are, um, you know, Hamden County has Superior Court, Berkshire County has Superior and District Court coming up, and then across the state, there's literally thirty. And they the 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 legislature just added eight more probate and family court judge positions, so we're going to get those. Um, literally, there's over 30. So, Tara Jacobs, when is your term up on the governor's council? It's a two-year term, so I'll when are you be gonna, running are you next run? year. You I will be running am. next year. I love this work so much. It feels so impactful and meaningful. And so, yeah, you will see me campaigning. Well, we look forward to it, and, and our microphone is your microphone. Oh, thank you so much. It's always thank such you, a pleasure Tara to join you. Thank you, Tara Jacobs, for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today, along with Councillor Tara Jacobs. Thank you for uh, joining Talk the Talk, and remember to walk the walk. Take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? It's the music you grew up with. WHMP and the news will be right here when you get back. The Valley's pure oldies, 96.9 and 100.5. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? 
you have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org. WHMP, 